Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we spoke with Deborah Heart and Lung Center's Chair of Cardiology, Dr. Vincent Pompili, about the ways COVID-19 directly and indirectly injures the heart muscle, the long-term effects, vaccines, and other ways we can strengthen our defenses against even an endemic form of the novel coronavirus as we head into life in a post-pandemic new normal. This month, KYW's Rasa K continues her conversation with Dr. Vincent Pompili. Here's Rasa K. I'm Rasa K. Continuing our talk with Dr. Vincent Pompili, Chair of the Department of Cardiology at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey. We're talking about COVID-19's effect on the heart. Your personal as a physician surprise arc on COVID over the last year plus now. Our early on phases of this, remember, we would say to our friends, our families, to our patients, yes, we should be through this by 4th of July or by Memorial Day. Remember those surprise arcs? This is, this is bad, but we're going to get a handle of this. It will pass through. So the persistence, this isn't going away quickly. So that's a surprise arc, both medically and personally, that we have to all come to grips with, that this is something that is going to be with us in some way, shape, or form for a longer period of time than we had hoped. So that's the first one. The second one, I think it relates to the dramatic effects it has on certain individuals. I think that you'll see, yeah, most people, 99% people recover, but the, the effects on lives of individuals, you know, those who are, and, and when you die of COVID, sadly, it's not usually a quick thing. That's the thing that we see. We see that it's usually linked first to a um, two to three ADM four-week intensive care unit stay. So it's, it's many of these patients actually sort of have, we fight hard, we've gotten better at that, but they still, despite all these efforts, still can't survive. And that's, that's a tough thing to share with families and patients. Especially since in so many cases, and, and by now so many of us know or have heard them personally or have, have been touched by them, somebody seems to be improving. And then it, it's just the reversal and the cascade. And the that's right. That's right. That's right, Ross. And what you see is that there are these, it's not so much that the actual virus is that causing this ill, it's, it's sort of your immune response to it. Uh, we call it a cytokine storm. I don't know if you've heard that term before. But essentially, all these immune cells, these white blood cells, release these cytokines, which are actually little proteins which cause horrible ill effects on your body. And, and it's that storm that comes. You know, it may come two weeks after your initial COVID infection. So you look like you're doing a little bit better. Your oxygenation's improving. You're ready to come down on the ventilator settings. And then all of a sudden, you sort of see these, these episodes where their blood pressures drop, their kidneys begin to fail. And th- those are some of the untoward, longer-term effects of that acute illness. The effective interventions therapies, how has that changed? You know, at the outset, just throwing anything that you can at at the symptoms that present, mm-hmm. and now the understanding of a more streamlined, targeted approach. How We've improved. Along? We've improved. As you know, in the beginning, we were throwing hydrochloroquine. We were throwing everything at the kitchen sink on everyone. And we realized that we have improved the therapeutics, as they call them. We actually have new algorithms how to really pr- produce a plan, how to treat each individual patient related to that. The antivirals, such as remdesivir, has been effective in hospitalized patients. Those with less acute symptoms, the monoclonal antibodies have been effective. So I think putting those care pathways together, 
you know, again, with 90% of, 90 plus percent of people not needing any of those things, but identifying those who are kind of rimming on that chance of requiring that has been helpful. And I think we've defined that. We've also defined a little bit more in our critical care and acute care, you know, the prone ventilation, we talked about that. A patient is on a ventilator, but laying on their stomach most of the time really helps with oxygenation. So the, the therapeutics have slowly improved. Um, they're still not perfect, but I think that we have become better at just throwing the kitchen sink at everyone. For most people, the 99% who are going to tough it out at home, what are the comorbidities that might make you more susceptible to yes. COVID-19, and if you have them and pick up the COVID-19 from somewhere, how do you manage it at home and make that decision of, when am I sick enough to have to go in? And, right, get and, checked out. Right. Right, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, so the comorbidities are still the same. Diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, autoimmune disease, history or being treated for hypertension, obesity, and known heart disease are really the big ones that have been associated with and age, your age is not a comorbidity, but it's a fact that, that have been associated with you being at a greater risk of developing a severe infection requiring hospitalization. Yes, most patients still can stay at home. Persistent fever is not uncommon, but if, if it persists beyond a week or so, it probably requires an evaluation. And the most common one that requires urgent evaluation would be that of a sort of respiratory or symptoms of shortness of breath. Uh, individuals that are developing hypoxia, low oxygen level in their blood because of COVID pneumonia are the ones that need to be seen rather quickly. And those are the individuals that seem to have rapid declines. If you start feeling short of breath at home, it's important to get that sort of checked out, have your blood oxygen levels checked in the emergency room, and see if you require supplemental oxygen or even a hospitalization for a period of time. Those are the individuals that some of the early therapeutics, such as remdesivir or the, uh, the monoclonal antibodies or even steroids, may be beneficial. It's worth showing up and, and, and having an evaluation with those symptoms. Is it good to have your own pulse oximeter at home? You can buy them all over the place. Oh, we have one at home. My wife bought one. I, I, they're safe. They're actually relatively effective. You know, I think if, if you have that infection, sort of track that along will be fine. The, the, the ones you can buy you know, on Amazon seem to be pretty effective in monitoring blood oxygen levels. You know, your blood oxygen level should be between 95 and 98 to 99% on room air. If it's lower than that, it's probably worth getting it checked out. Certainly, if it goes below 92, it's, it's a, it's a worry related to COVID infection. Below 92. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so getting checked out. Say you have one of these underlying conditions or, or whatever you're being treated for, but, but especially if, if you're a heart patient for any cardiac concern, you need to be checked on a regular basis. So are people coming back in for their appointments? Slowly, slowly. So early on, as you know, we um, not only here at Deborah, but throughout the country, especially in the Northeast, we had a dramatic drop off in following up patient visits and taking care for other comorbidities. The time frame of between May, June, July, and even to August, patients thought that it was unsafe to come to the hospital for other care and, and really avoided coming through our doors. These comorbidities that they already had were worsening. Their blood pressure was in worse control. Their diabetes was in poor control. They were not exercising. They were more sedentary. All these things that kind of created a situation that actually making them a greater risk for COVID infection. Another piece that we learned both in this region but nationally early on, the incidence of patients coming in for treatment of a heart attack 
life-threatening heart attacks reduced by 40%. So it wasn't like there were less heart attacks in the United States in May, June, and July. Patients were staying home with their heart attacks and perhaps not surviving. Instead of getting rapidly into a center such as Deborah, where you would have an emergent catheterization, angioplasty, and stent on many of these patients. So we kind of lost those. What I tell patients now is the hospital is probably one of the safest places to be. You know, you're going to, you're going to Wegmans and Walmarts and all these other places. You know, we at, at Deborah and all the hospitals throughout the region are very cautious. You know, we're wearing masks, we're socially distancing. All of our patients whom are coming in for elective procedures and those in the hospital are actually tested with, for COVID before coming in, although not perfect, as you know, the COVID infection and the test do have some crossover. You could have a negative test and still have the infection. But uh, we have taken, as all hospitals in this region throughout the country, significant precautions to care for patients. How does a vaccine protect our individual health? So on the high level, what the vaccine has done is really provided adequate immunity to us or to individuals who received it to really prevent having severe infection from COVID. We could do a little bit of a breakdown. The two vaccines that were first approved, Moderna and Pfizer, were mRNA vaccines. And you'll hear criticism, oh, this has only been out and figured out for the last 12 months, must be some problem with it. Always take the stop and recall. We have been working on, we as a country, mRNA vaccines for the last decade. It's just a matter of then customizing it to the right virus or the right insult to your body. The way the mRNA vaccines work are you actually get injected with a very small part of mRNA, which is the little code that stimulates protein production in your cells. DNA is in the, the nucleus of the cell, which kind of holds all of the description of all the code of you as an organism. The RNA that's released into the outside of the cell produces the protein. What the vaccine did was actually fool you by actually injecting a piece of mRNA in, that would be taken up by your cells and then produce a protein, which is the crown piece of, of the virus, and then stimulating your own immune system to be programmed to resist that and to actually fight that. Not only fight it acutely during the infection, but also stimulate your blood cells that hold a memory of that. And if that virus protein would come back in you know, six months from now, it would re-stimulate the immune system. So that's how the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines work. The J&J vaccine is a little bit different, and then we'll talk about the effects of those. Um, it's, it's brought in by the ad, an adenovirus, the virus that causes a cold. It's a relatively benign virus. They programmed this virus to infect cells in your body, and then for a very short period of time, produce that same protein, a protein which will stimulate that effect on your cells. So all three of the vaccines kind of manipulate your cells for a short period of time to actually become little machines to produce just a piece of that coronavirus and then cause your immune system to go forward. The variants that are out there. Getting back to COVID-19's impact on the heart, have you been seeing, hearing about any heightened cardiac impacts from the variants we've been worrying about, South African, UK, Brazilian? We have not yet. We have not yet. Not here in the United States, nor no, have I read of, of any particular negative effects on those thus far. With the variants, the worst effects that they have is they're, they're much easier to get an infection from them. So the virulence, the, how severe they cause the disease may not be as difficult as it's just much easier to transmit that virus than other viruses. Aerosol transmission. Yes. I still see all of these screens up everywhere to separate people sneeze guards. You know, I'm sure that the, it's a great visual. 
<laughs> and you laugh exactly because it's aerosol, right? Right. Uh, explain aerosol versus this this droplet transmission. Well, so droplet are smaller or liquid particles, where aerosol actually the virus just sort of flows. So it's actually droplet. Actually, you have to spew some. You have to cost some your own you know, your own liquid your, from your mouth or your throat into the air, and that little droplets go. Where aerosol would be more just actually the virus sort of floating in, in the air. Cheering, singing, yeah. laughing. Yes, yes. There's still. Is there that much of a difference between singing versus talking or laughing? But they, they've done some levels of studies that suggest that's the case. But even just talking? Yes, sure. And so basically with these more virulent variants, you need fewer particles. Exactly. And that's, and that's what we're finding. Yeah. So the term virulence means that it may cause worse disease. We don't necessarily believe or know that just yet with them from the variants. What we do know is that it's much easier to transmit and infect mass groups of individuals with it. So once again, back to these vaccines and vaccine hesitancy takes so many forms. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing to me, you know, as, as someone that has been on the other side of an ICU, seeing some of these individuals, you know, lose their lives. I am a little frustrated with the level of hesitancy that we have in our country for something that we've vaccinated for numbers of things throughout, you know, at least my entire lifetime. For something such as this, this is really going to be the critical hurdle for us to get over. Do people need to wear a mask and social distance even after being vaccinated? Yes. Because? We don't know. We don't know after vaccination if you have been treated not to be a carrier. All we know from the vaccine studies is that it's reduced your risk of a clinical infection, you know, by 95% for the mRNA vaccine and like 75% in the United States for the J&J vaccine. We know that it reduces your risk of dying from it significantly, you know, down to almost 0% or being hospitalized. But we don't know, and it's not been studied, so that will you be not a carrier a, or a subclinical infected individual with that. So the answer is yes, in my opinion, and the CDCs, that despite being vaccinated, you still need to maintain social distancing and wear a mask. If you've had COVID, why should you get vaccinated? Uh, that's a great question. We don't know that in the trials. They really didn't focus on COVID-infected patients. They focused on all comers. The level of immunity from the COVID infection and its persistent is unknown. And unfortunately, it's also unknown with the vaccination at this point. Those are the studies that will, are going to be ongoing. Will we need a booster in a year from now? We don't know. Will it be nine months from now? We don't know. You have an emergency use authorization of a vaccine, as we did. All the data is still not in. We know it's safe. We know it's effective in the short, relatively short term. How long will that immunity persist? We don't know. So it, it's the same with COVID infection, we don't know how long immunity persists from true infection or the vaccine. We're kind of building the plane as we fly it, as they say, with the vaccine and with treating COVID. In August, we'll have a better sense. You know, you know we'll have people that are eight months vaccinated and they're going to be taking blood from them and measuring their antibody levels. We'll know more. Next January, we'll even know more one year afterwards. So evolution. That wraps up our chat with Dr. Vincent Pompili, whom I spoke with before the pause on vaccinations with the Johnson & Johnson shot. 
We reached out to Dr. Pompili after regulators lifted the pause and he reiterated in an email that he believes all three of the vaccines given emergency use authorization in the U.S. are safe and effective and that the safety review of the J&J shot demonstrates, quote, that our vaccine safety system is working well. He continues, side effects from all three vaccines are minimal. Breakthrough infections from all three are also low and consistent with the vaccine's stated effectiveness. The benefits of getting the vaccine and preventing COVID-19 illness, hospitalization and death is far greater than the risk of any side effects. And I strongly urge everyone to get vaccinated as soon as possible. That's Dr. Vincent Pompili's words. So there you have it. We'll be talking next with Dr. Andrew Martin about how Deborah is treating what's being called long COVID. Our podcast dropped the first Wednesday of the month. Check us out then. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at DemandDeborah.org.